A word of prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, our God, how awesome you are. Lord, we read of your power and your might in your creation, the universe. And Lord, we stand so insignificant before your heavens, so we know how much more incredibly smaller we must be when we stand before you. We are undeserving of your kindness and your generosity and your love in every way, Lord. Your love is greater than all the heavens. Lord, we are so undeserving. And we are so overcome by the kindness of your love, the generosity. We know that even the greatest things that can be imagined of you are just figments of who you really are. And Lord, we celebrate the union between you and your Son. Lord, we look at your Son and what he did for us, of Jesus and what he did for the church. How awesome is Jesus, Lord. We are so lost without you. Our sin and our failure drag us back as though we had a millstone tied around us and we were cast into the sea. And still we try and solve it on ourselves, by ourselves. We fail to look to you. Come this morning and be with us. Remind us that we do not fall short. Let us not follow after our own hearts, but to you and you only we open our hearts. Lord, give us the wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah this morning, to understand them, to study them. Give us discernment, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mom came in from Ohio on Tuesday, and it was not an uneventful trip. You would think that coming from Ohio to California, Atlanta would not be part of that equation. That would not be true. If you fly Delta, you fly to Atlanta. And so she was supposed to connect there to the, she had an hour layover, and then she was gonna fly out. Well, fortunately, I can watch this stuff online. And there was this two and a half hour delay, and I keep going, what is going on? So <laughs> finally, she's on the airplane, and I'm watching the airplane, and this poor guy, you can tell he's doing everything he can to try and make up time. It's supposed to be like a, a four hour and 15 minute flight, and he does it in like three hours and 58 minutes. I mean, this guy was working hard to try and make time up. And um, so we're watching, and I'm watching the arrival time, and it, it, you know, the, the time is actually going backwards. And it, it's saying like 4.09, I think is what it was. So um, <laughs> I tell Leanne, okay, we gotta get in the car, we gotta go now. So we jump in the car, and. Of course, the freeway is a disaster. <laughs> and, um, we, we finally made it down there, and uh, um, it was about uh, 25 minutes from the time Mom landed till she was standing at the, at the curbside, and she calls us up and, come get me. And, and uh, so we, we uh, found her fairly, fairly quick. I was just, just thinking, you know, we'd just gotten by all the, 
all the doors that go into the Delta terminal, and we hadn't seen mom yet. And like, I must have missed her, you know, let's go around. And just at that moment, there she is, she's standing on the corner at the, at the end. It's like, so I'm diving back across that lane of traffic that I just pulled out of, you know, and everybody's honking their horn. Anyway, we, we got it all taken care of. So uh, mom has two wishes while she's here. One is to see her great-granddaughter. I, I, I want that photo of, of uh, mom and Leanne and Rebecca and the baby girl because none of the older women are related, okay? But they're related to her, and she's related to every single one of them. I want that photo. And uh, mom's second wish was to go see my airplane at the California Science Center. So we did that on, on, on uh, we already went down and did that. And uh, I posted that picture online. And um, one of my interns, apparently um, when they were building it, interns, you cannot trust them. <laughs> you cannot trust them. So they had signed the inside of the airplane and they had photographs of their signature on the inside of the airplane, and I had no idea that was in there. And so they're sending me this photo, interns were here, duh. <laughs> so their names are down there in the, in the museum as well. So um, on Tuesday, I'm, I'm connected to Cal State San Bernardino, and I was supposed to talk with some professors and I had to let the lead professor know that I couldn't, couldn't be there because I was picking my mom up at the, at the airport. And the reply I get back from the professor, you have a note from your mother, you are excused. <laughs> Everybody's a comedian. <laughs> and then just to cap it off, you know, this week wasn't busy enough. It turns out that the experiments that will fly to the International Space Station in April, that those decisions are being made this week. And I'm on that committee to help determine what experiments are going to space station. Um, so I, I dialed in and, and we took care of that. And um, this is for the SpaceX, um, they call it, uh, crew resupply, and uh, that will happen in April for these, and they're student experiments. That's really the cool part, is there's high school students that are flying experiments on the space station, and I love that. So that has to happen every time. Um, it's been a pretty intense week. It's been a good week. Okay, we're in chapter 33 of Isaiah. And uh, we're going to do the entire chapter today. And this is a longish song, actually, that Isaiah does. Um, and it's, it's uh, one continuous piece. It's also a song of hope and the promise of God. It begins with a song of, and again, three pieces, right? Always Jewish literature, three pieces. Everything falls into threes. And so um, we're looking at a longish song and uh, it's a song of warning is what, how it begins for those who oppress God's people. 
God does not forget his people, and Israel receives grace and mercy from God. And um, so those are the three pieces, the warning, and then God's people do not forget God, and then finally, um, Israel receives grace and mercy from God. And you'll see those pieces as we go along. Um, this, by the way, is the sixth and the last oracle against the Assyrians. And as Bill keeps pointing out, eventually we get out of this and it, it shifts gears when we get to uh, chapter 37. Okay, so this, this last piece, 33, 34, 35, 36, is the last pieces before we get to 37 and it all shifts. All right. Did I get all? I think I got everything. All right. Oh, one other thing. I've mentioned before where like a word comes up and it just strikes me that that's wrong and I have to go dig out the Hebrew and that happened again this week. And so we're going to talk about where that happens. Okay, so let's start. Verse 1, chapter 33, verse 1. O Lord, be gracious to us. And it begins, if you have the ESV or the NASB, it's going to say, Ah, you destroyer. And so here, ah, once again, is woe. Same thing, right? Woe, you destroyer. You yourself has not, have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Now this is really interesting here, this turn. So verse 1, Ah, you destroyer, can also be read as woe to you, destroyer. And this is a warning to Sennacherib, the emperor of Assyria. Keep in mind that the Assyrians believed that Sennacherib was God, that their king was God, all right? That's, they worshipped him as though he were God. Okay. So he is the emperor of Assyria. And as yet, the Assyrians have not yet felt the sting of defeat. But God has Isaiah warning the Assyrians, that they soon will be destroyed themselves. And their defeat, after this defeat, comes betrayal. So it turns out that the story comes out in 2 Kings 18, 14 to 20. 2 Kings 18, 14 to 20. Now listen to this. This is great. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elijah laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the, windward, the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elijah said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, 
You shall fight these Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took the arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And the king struck the ground three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. So now we leap down just a little bit further in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 19, 32 to 37. 2 Kings 19, 32 to 37. And this is a really important one. Therefore, says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. Now I need to stop here. Something you need to imagine. The Assyrians are a huge, vast army. In the Middle East, they are the largest single army in all of the Middle East at this time. And Israel is a little tiny nation. Israel has always been a little tiny nation. We think of the, the, Isra the Israelites today as being a little tiny nation fighting against the Arabs. It is the same here with Israel fighting against the Assyrians. Listen here to what happens now. So this is still 2 Kings 19, and this is 35 through 37. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria departed and he went home and lived at Nineveh and as he was worshiping in the house of Nirrach, Nishrach, sorry, Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sharzar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ashardan, his youngest son, reigned in his place. So the emperor of the Assyrians was assassinated by his two oldest sons, and then they fled. This is the betrayal that Isaiah was talking about, that the emperor of Assyria would die by the hand because of betrayal. Let's continue on. Verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. 
Quickly, God and Isaiah turn to speaking to God's people. And God's people wait on God for grace. And they seek God's strength, his outstretched arm. Every morning, God's people wait upon the Lord. Their plea for God to be their salvation in their time of trouble is here. Verse 3. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. Here in verse 3, we hear the sound of the battle is terrifying. The Assyrian army is an unstoppable column. Nations are destroyed before their might, and the people flee before the mighty Assyrians. And keep in mind, the Israelites know when the Assyrians came through Lebanon, through Tyre and Sidon, and what happened to those cities, and they believe that they are next. Verse 4, And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The riches of the land are gathered by the invaders. The spoils are leapt upon by the Assyrians and carried off. Verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Verse 5, we have this serene image of strength and power, the immense presence of the Lord God. God will fill his country with his justice and righteousness. How in contrast this seems to what is going on with the Assyrians. And now here in verse 6, and he will be the stability of your time. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Now, all of you who are looking at ESVs and NASBs are seeing the word stability here. And that just struck me a little odd. So, I actually dug up the Hebrew, and here's a word-for-word translation from the Hebrew. And he will be the security of your time of wealth, salvation, and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is his treasure. Now that's more like it to me. That makes sense to me. That God will be the security of our times. So verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets, The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The great heroes of the Assyrians here cry out in terror in the streets, and their government officials who bring their peace demands weep. Why does this happen? And at this time, no one knew how God was going to solve the problem. Verse 8. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken, cities are despised, and there is no regard for man. The great roads are littered with the detritus of the fleeing army. 
The promises that they made of how they would defeat Israel are neglected. And the cities that were overrun by these Syrians are in ruins. And there is no regard for the living. This is what Israel expected to happen to them. And yet none of it did. Because God protected them. Verse 9. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Even the fields and the forest sigh in sadness. The land of Lebanon is a confused pile of rubble. The rolling hills are raised. Stubble, like a desert, grows on them. And the cities of Bashan and caramel drop their leaves of their trees because of the waste. This is what the Assyrians left in their wake after they were gone. Now in verse 10, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And so, now, God lifts himself up, and he rises, and God is exalted. Because only God can exalt himself the way he deserves to be, right? The plans of man are chaff and stubble. So here in verse 11, you, con- you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you. The plans of man are just chaff and stubble before the Assyrians and before God, to be burned in the fire, consumed by the flames, only ashes remain. Only the plans of God matter. Verse 12. The peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. These are the peoples that were the army of the Assyrians. And they are burned as though they were burned to lime, like branches of thorns eaten up by the flame. Verse 13, Here you are far off what I have done, And you who are near, acknowledge my might. God calls out to the whole earth, hear what I have wrought. And to those who are near and can see what God has done here, they must acknowledge his mighty works. Verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Isaiah asks of those who are covered by faith in God and the covenant God offers to us. They fear for their souls. They shake in fear. And those who are not covered by the covenant are terrified. None can stand the flames. None can stand the perpetual fires. Verse 15. 
verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. The righteous of God walk upright and speak forthrightly. They despise ill-gotten prophets. They despise the oppression of the weak, the orphan and the widow. They shun the bribe. They despise bloodshed. And they do not look upon evil. James 1.27, New Testament, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is not just in the New Testament. Psalm 68.5, Psalm 68.5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. This is what God's people are called to be. Verse 16, again, an image of serenity. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. If I stop right here, you're thinking this is God the Father, the Lord, right? Listen to the third verse here. This is really cool. That The third part of the verse here. The, the third part of the verse is, the bread will be given him, his water will be sure. And as soon as I read that, I'm going, that's Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about the Father. Look at what we have here in 16. It does not immediately say who it is, but the ending, it's very clear. He will dwell on heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. The bread and the cup again. This is Jesus. Verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. The people of God will behold the king in his beauty, and the people of God shall see the kingdom of God stretch afar. Again, in speaking of the king, we talk about Jesus being the king. This immediately, verses 16 and 17 right here, really spoke to me as this is being Jesus. In verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? Here in verse 18, the people will think on the terror of the lost. What happened to the one who counted? What happened to the one who weighed the gold? What happened to the one who counted the towers of the wall? Where are they? What became of them? Verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. 
Here in verse 19, we see that gone will be di the difficult people. The people who are unintelligible shall be no more, and those who speak gibberish shall be gone also. Verse 20. We're getting close to the end. <clears throat> verse 20. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. God's eternal kingdom will be the shining city on the hill, the city of feasts celebrating God's great servant, his son, the king of our salvation. God's people shall see Jerusalem, the city of peace, the immovable habitation, fixed firmly, never to be moved again. And so here, verse 21, but there the Lord in his majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor a majestic ship can pass. God shall reside in his majesty there, the place of wide rivers and pleasant streams, a place where no war galley powered by oars or majestic warship can sail, can go by. By the way, it was referring to cords in the previous verse. This is what is used to refer to the lines that hold the mast up on the ships that they had at the time. That always gets translated as the cords. So now in verse 23 here, it says, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. They pray and spoil in abundance, will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. The cords mentioned here are what we would call today standing rigging. This is a major structural component of a sailing vessel that holds the spars to the hull. Without the standing rigging, if there's slop in that rigging, the loss of the mast is, insure, is assured. Indeed, the mast cannot be held in place, and the sails cannot be used. The loss of the mast will result in the loss of the ship. Such a ship becomes prey to the enemy's ships. Much, even a much weaker ship can overcome a ship struggling with a loose rig. And so finally, we come to the last verse, verse 24. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The people who are harbored in Zion will not see sickness of their souls. God forgives the city dwellers of their sins. God covers their sins here. The amazing thing to me is God doesn't tell us how, Isaiah doesn't tell us how God is going to do this. Isaiah, it's almost like Isaiah is holding back. Or he doesn't know at this point, perhaps. We don't, we don't know how God is going to take care of the sins of the people. 
but somehow he's going to do this. And that ends our passage today. Can you see these pieces of this vision? Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? Do you see what God is trying to do? Can you see the imprint of Jesus here in Isaiah's words? Are we listening to God? Do we hear what Isaiah is trying to tell us? Are we seeing and hearing anew God's calling to us every day? Remember, every last few weeks I've been asking you, you get up in the morning, what happens when your feet hit the floor? Do you think of Jesus? Or do we drag ourselves out dreading what's going to happen that day? What is the song in our hearts? Isaiah sings a song of redemption. Implied here is how God will redeem Israel and bring all God's people back to his holy mountain to worship him. If you step back just a moment and think, you can see it. Isaiah is saying, don't do this. Don't follow after all the evil people that he describes here. Follow after God's people. Follow after God. This is the message that is coming. This is the promise that God will be there in the end. That God is the only one who can save. Do you notice that? The only time it talks about salvation is where it's speaking of God. God is the only one. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Look to Jesus. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. He wants us to be more Christ-like, to take care of the orphan, to take care of the widow. God loves us all. I look at the chaos in the world today and how this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. How we should hide from evil. And I think of how I fail at this and how I keep trying to rely on myself and how I need to give it up. Just give it all to Jesus. We need to be looking to God's mercy and love. I need that love that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. I need God's power of forgiveness. Yet God still chooses us. God, our Abba Father. I look at what happens to Isaiah ultimately. It's not written here in the Old Testament, but we have tradition that tells us what we think happened to Isaiah. The chaos and the tumult of the world and the faith that God gave to Isaiah, how it gave Isaiah an anchor to hold on to, and how this serves God's righteousness. Ultimately, this serves God's greatness too. And God's greatness will be there on that last day for all to see. And we will all witness his greatness and his splendor on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so amazingly great, and we are so infinitesimally small. Lord, you have hidden these words all these years that were spoken by Isaiah 
and you've handed down them down to us just for us to have down through all the ages you have given them to us lord we have not been paying attention we have been unfaithful we keep trying to save ourselves we think that we can do this we look to egypt we look to the world you want us to hear what you're trying to tell us in Isaiah's words. You continue to hold us in the palm of your hand and you cover us and you lovingly guide us, pointing our feet in the direction that we should go. Heavenly Father, we ask that you hide your word in our hearts. We read the words of your prophet Isaiah. We ask that you write those words deep down inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn from you, only from you, Lord. Guide us in your perfect path. Your path of redemption is so perfect. Let us not smooth out your rock. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. Jesus, you are so amazing. We love you. We bless you and we honor you. We praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.